0: Episode 5 of the Bureau 42 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we're looking at the fifth episode of The X-Files, Jersey Devil. This episode takes us into New Jersey, and once again it's written by Chris Carter. Now this Chris Carter episode is a little bit different than the other ones. This is the first time Chris Carter is writing an episode that's not some kind of alien conspiracy or UFOs. This is dealing with a different monster. Specifically, it's drawing on the myth of the Jersey Devil and playing with the Jersey Devil, although as we'll see, it doesn't play out like the Jersey Devil myth traditionally does. This episode is also directed by Joe Napolitano, and he's got a few credits to his name. We didn't see him direct a lot of episodes of The X-Files. In fact, only two of them, and they're both in this first season. He did 12 episodes of Quantum Leap, a few episodes of Earth-2, and other ones since then, an episode of Bones, and so forth. But he does have quite a few TV directing credits behind his name. Looking at the episode specifically, once again, we're getting that structure that we've seen in the previous X-Files episodes. We start with a teaser that's not only devoid of Scully and Elder, this teaser actually takes place in 1947. So we've got a vintage card driving three miles outside of Atlantic City, and we get a blowout. Family inside is having fun. Looks like, you know, typical thing coming back from a family vacation. It's after hours. Mom's leading a sing-along with the kids to try and keep them occupied. Now, the tire blowout is interesting. The way it's done, it looks like it was done as an after-effect. So, they didn't actually shake the set. They were just shaking the image on the film after the fact. Again, we're seeing a lot of the attention to detail that the X-Files was known for. So, we've got vintage clothing. This old car has the white wall tires. We see that the driver of the car has spats. father of the family, is changing the tire, drops the flashlight, it rolls down the ravine. He comes back, asks his wife to hold the light for a second. Something drags him out of the frame. Again, it's what you don't see. It's very dark. He gets pulled out. We don't see what's pulling him. What we see is his wife panicking, picking up the flashlight, shining it into the woods, and seeing nothing. The viewers see his feet being dragged away, but the mum doesn't see anything. From there, we cut from this nighttime scene to a daytime scene. The daytime scene is a search party. They've got the dogs. They're out there hunting. They're looking for the missing person. Someone declares, we found something. So they come close. Some of the people who find it vomit. The man's leg has been eaten off his body. Some of the local police officers who aren't really affected exchange knowing looks. We kind of get the impression that maybe this has happened before. There's a call. He's out here. The police are drawn to a cave. They go there. open fire. Again, as the viewers, we don't clearly see what's inside. From here, we cut to the opening credits once more, we're seeing that teaser structure. And again, the establishing stories on these aren't necessarily what's happening right now. So some of them are building a history, as though this stuff has been going on for a long time. And in later episodes, and especially the movie, we're going to see just how long these stories have been going for. So from there, we cut to the modern-day FBI. Now, we've seen before in Squeeze and other episodes trying to push the borders and push the limits of what we can do on network television. This is an episode that does that. Scully comes into Mulder's office, asks him if he's working hard, and he's looking at some sort of Centerfold. There's a magazine where, you know, the pages unfold, and he says this woman claims that she was held in an anti gravity chamber without food or water for three days, and Scully makes an anti gravity comment. So this is where we see an ongoing in joke in character development, Mulder's got a porn addiction. It's the first time we see it it will come up again. Once they joke their way through that, Scully presents a case to him where a man's had his, his arm and right shoulder eaten off in the Jersey Woods. Mulder reacts immediately asking where in Jersey, and he pulls out an X file, and he's leading it directly to the Jersey Devil, that myth that apparently is quite common in that area. I have to admit I researched it to do this podcast. I'd never heard the myth of the Jersey Devil growing up, possibly because I don't live anywhere even remotely close to New Jersey. At any rate, Mulder is very familiar with the case from 1947. even talking about the man that was gunned down in the cave who had human remains within his digestive system. Now, the original coroner's report disappeared, but they do have sworn statements from the people who did it saying, no, this is what happened. So, Mulder gets a vehicle requisition. Now, the geography of the office is a little bit different in this episode that we're going to see later. Just the flow of the conversation makes it look like... They left Mulder's office, come right around the corner, and they're in the next room. But Mulder's office is typically treated as a basement office, where he's sort of buried and out of the way. That's the way it's was treated in the pilot. That's the way it's very clearly treated later on. In this case, it's definitely not the basement. As I said, the flow of the conversation is almost immediate. So unless they took separate elevators, in which case, why are they side-by-side when the conversation continues on screen? It just doesn't make sense, since the room that they step into has large floor-to-ceiling windows. So that one is definitely not a basement office. From there, we cut to them reaching Atlantic City, and they're at the morgue talking to the coroner, who's confirming that, yeah, this person was attacked by a human being. These teeth marks are definitely human, probably an adult male. It's certainly not any type of animal. So, and it's not the case of a mob hit, as Baldur was asking earlier. This is a case of it's a homeless person, there's no clear motive. He just seems to have been attacked. So the local detective who's handling the case. Detective Thompson comes in and it's very clear that he does not want FBI involvement. This is their case. The FBI don't need to be here. Even Mulder's saying, we're not here in an official capacity but Thompson is still brushing them off and saying, just going to ask you to leave. This is our investigation. Coroner's saying, there's no need to get pissy. But again he's saying, nope, unless your attorney general is different. This case is a local matter and basically pushes them out. On the way out, they're discussing the way that the local detective was treating them and again we see some of the elements of the political side to Scully. And she knows how to play the game and work the system a little bit better than Mulder does, just as she was doing in Squeeze. So then even she bugs Mulder a bit, saying, you could have one to him. You could have told him his perpetrator was the Jersey Devil. Mulder suggests grabbing a hotel, catching a floor show, dropping a few quarters in the slots, and doing a little digging. Scully goes, are you serious? And we get Mulder's personality again. Okay, we'll skip the floor show. So again, we can see this work is what he's there for. That's what he's doing. He's obsessed with it. And Scully's saying, no, she's got her, her godson's birthday party at 6.30 p.m. It's a three-hour drive back, and she's not going to miss it for something that seems open and shut when they have no jurisdiction. So Mulder just tosses her the vehicle keys, and he's staying the weekend. He's got one suit, one tie, just the change of clothes that he walked in with. No good of any kind, but he doesn't care. There's a case here. He's going to follow it up. From here, we cut to one of the casinos, and Mulder's in there. David DuCovney is not... Mulder is. This is a case of blue screening that's actually quite poor. There's a definite border around David Duchovny. The colors aren't quite right. When he turns his head, the size of his nose changes. So it is a case where he's been blue screened into something. Now, as I mentioned previously, this came out in '93. It's the same year as Jurassic Park, which was a major landmark in terms of visual effects and blending the CGI dinosaurs, and it really raised the bar in computer-generated imaging. It was not at the point where getting good CGI was affordable on a TV budget. So the X-Files does improve, but a lot of the times they do it just by keeping the monster out of sight and using a lot of physical effects, which even to this day I still find more convincing than a lot of CGI. You don't have the glossy surfaces, you don't have a lot of the issues. Plus, there's something physically there, so when actors are acting, their eye lines line up. They're actually making eye contact with the thing they're talking about. So Mulder leaves the casino. He just checks the phone books, finds a local forest ranger, and gets a guy with a lot of experience, the guy who found the body, and starts talking to him, asking him, so what kind of things have you seen here? Have you come across weird stuff? And the guy's going, I've seen weird stuff, but never anything like this. Mulder's asking, do you get a lot of homeless men out here? And the ranger's going, well, I see some, but most are scared of the woods. And this is when Mulder's drawing the story out of him and finds out, you know, this guy he's close to his pension, he's not willing to commit to saying Yeah, there's a Jersey devil out here, but he is willing to say he's seen some weird things, he's seen human teeth and dead rabbits, he's seen deer bones sharpened into tools, and it's it's at the point where he doesn't come out here anymore, unless he's armed. He's even seen something that seemed like a large man that was living in the wild. Beyond that he it was it's almost like he was avoiding. The ranger by smell, and Mulder sort of breaks the ice with the ranger and lets him know he's willing to believe and willing to listen. And then, if he hears anything, let him know. At which point, Mulder walks off to the woods. Now from here, we cut to Scully's godson's birthday party. And these early episodes, they do establish that Scully has a social life, or at least she does at this stage. And we see her taking care of kids, we see her interacting with them. This episode very nicely drives home the point: Mulder's life has nothing but his work, and Scully's trying to find the balance between her work life and her personal life. There's even a moment where her godson's mother and Scully are having a little talk in the kitchen, and Scully's complimenting her, saying, I don't know how you do this, and I could never be a mother. No one's going, what are you talking about? You could definitely do this, but first you have to meet a guy. What about that guy you work with? And again, early in this in this series, it was very clear that there was no romance between Mulder and Scully. She even says that, you know, the guy's a jerk. Well, no, he's not a jerk. He's just obsessed with his work. Right on the he's obsessed with his work line, we cut to Mulder walking through the woods, just exploring and taking the walk back to town on his own, just checking out to see what he can see, looking for any evidence of the Jersey Devil. Cut back to the birthday party, and Scully brings in Rob, who's Scott's father, and her friend Meely whispers, divorced, to sort of let that through. Now, once again, the X-Files has some solid guest stars. This one is Andrew Airely. A lot of us would know him as Ben's father on Reaper, the very good but short-lived comedy in from CW from a few years back. And again, cut back to New Jersey, this time Mulder's out wandering into the area where the deceased span was known to stay. Again, he was a homeless man, so it's outside the Mercy Mission. There's a lot of other homeless people in the area, and he's showing up saying anyone know Roger Crockett, which is the victim's name, just trying to get information about what happened before Crockett's death. He does eventually find one guy who says yeah, I knew Crockett. What do you want to know? And Mulder's asking, did you hear how he died? Do you know who might have done it? The other homeless guy says, you a cop? He says, no, I'm FBI. That bridges enough trust that the homeless man is going to show Mulder something. He takes Mulder to the little shanty that he's assembled where he lives at the end of an alley. And at this point decides he's going to need money if he's going to give Mulder anything. So, you know, Mulder gives him a handout in exchange for the information, and the guy shows him a drawing of the Jersey Devil. And it's a pretty sketchy drawing. It's basically an androgynous person with long black hair, and that's about it. It's it's not the kind of drawing that one could use for any kind of identification. So, And Mulder is basically saying to not until the cops. He's trying to identify this creature that the homeless man has claimed has been right in this very alley, rooting through trash. So... Mulder takes the opportunity, says, where are you staying tonight? Guy goes, right here, you're standing in my bedroom. Mulder hands over his hotel key. He's staying at the Galaxy Gateway Hotel. Wonder why Mulder picked that one. You know, homeless guy's going, they got HBO? And Mulder's laughing, yeah, they do. So the homeless guy goes off to enjoy his night at the hotel. And Mulder's just looking at this very sketchy drawing and doing his best to stay up all night, hoping that the thing comes back on the night that he's actually here. And it does. Now he doesn't get a very clear view. It may not be a clear view, but he definitely sees some sort of person digging through the trash. And it is definitely human. Mulder tries to slowly approach it, try and make contact and get a good look at it without seeming like a threat. He does end up accidentally scaring it off, and goes out in pursuit. And this is another nice touch for the X-Files. It's not like some of the other shows, where you get just the perfect action hero. He starts climbing a chain-link fence to pursue this thing, realizes he can't, even stumbles as he's running in the dark afterwards. Goes after it, sees it running across a rooftop, whistles to get its attention, and police show up. It happens to the local PD? They're not paying much attention to him, they're just going to bring him someplace where he can sleep it off. So, Muller's unable to follow the man he's declaring is up on this roof. Then we see the detective in charge of the case, meaning Mulder, in the police station, going, "What do you think you're doing?" And Mulder's just doing the sarcastic and join the nightlife here in the beautiful Atlantic City. The detective's not taking it. He's complaining misconduct, obstructing an investigation. Mulder's saying, well, yeah, let's go together to the DA. Let's see who's really doing this. And he's doing it on the basis of the statements of the homeless people being ignored. The detective has just dismissed the idea that there is something out there, that some woodland creature that's out eating people. And again, we're seeing some of the tone that was set up in Squeeze. There's a lot of nighttime shooting in this one. The majority of Mulder's scenes, with the exception of a couple in the woods, are shot at night. Scully's back in Washington, at her godson's birthday party, those are a lot of daytime scenes. So we're getting a nice contrast between the bright real world and the dark world of the X-Files, and almost the paranormal world. So it's not just a case of shooting when they can and doing the location shooting. There is a lot of location shooting, but they're picking the times of day, and they're working around what serves the story. And they're working in a lot of themes and visual cues that they can, and doing what they can with the environments to help set the tone. It had to be some brutal shooting schedules as they were waiting for dark in a lot of these cases. Now from there we cut back to FBI headquarters in Washington. Which makes me wonder exactly what's going on here. Because Kelly's trying to be a normal person, she's trying to have a normal life. And here she is at work on a Saturday morning, just walking in when she gets a call from Mulder on one of the office phones. She's asking him, what's that in the background? And we cut to Mulder and he's in the drunk tank. Talk about saying, well that's a guy getting sick. And then Mulder starts to tell his side of the story and how he landed there. Cut to Scully picking him up, saying, Well, it's not hard to see why they mistook you for a vagrant. Mulder's going, Are you going to rag on me? You're going to get me something to eat. Scully's asking, Are I buying or did you manage to panhandle some change? So from there, they cut to a diner where Mulder's telling his story, and he doesn't understand why Scully doesn't believe him. And it is a nicely done scene. So Scully's sitting in the diner. She's not eating. She's fine. But Mulder's wolfing down the food while he's telling his side of the story. He is a bit disheveled. We've got the 5 o'clock shadow. The suit's getting a little bit dirty and beat up. So again, there's attention to detail here. It's not like some series where the attire should not be clean, and it is. This is a case where it is starting to get wrinkled. It is starting to get darker, especially in the areas where one would sweat, and Scully is saying, well, she can't keep doing this. She has a date. Mulder asks, can you cancel? But again, if you don't get the feeling that he's jealous. You get, well, he may be a bit jealous, but it's not jealous in the romantic sense. It's in the, here's the partner, here's the one person who seems to humor me, and she's being taken away. So he's more jealous about this guy taking her time than anything else. So before that, they do cut to the University of Maryland. And again, we've got another case of strong guest stars. In this case, it's Gregory Sierra, who is probably best known to most people from his regular role as Sergeant Chano on Barney Miller. He was one of the officers in the precinct right in the first season, but he's only in the first 35 episodes. But his role here is as an anthropologist, and he's talking about the food chain. And this episode is building into an environmental care parable. So he's talking about how treating the environment is working. There's even a little quip earlier on when Scully's friend was saying, well, good men are are out there but they're disappearing faster than the Brazilian rainforest. And they're talking about, well, what if this Jersey Devil is one of these creatures? It's reverted to its most animal instincts. It's a kind of carnivorous Neanderthal. Wouldn't he occupy a space above us on the food chain? At which point the guy's saying, oh, he'd have to. Otherwise, he couldn't survive. And they're talking about, well, maybe he'd resort to cannibalism. And the guy's saying, well, cannibalism is rare. Maybe in the jungles of New Guinea, but it's highly unlikely that what you're suggesting is going on here. But they get into it. What about the extreme possibility? Mankind is expanding. We're taking over some other habitats. Maybe this thing is just reacting. From here, we dissolve to a night scene. And Mulder is still on the case. He's in his office. He's under a lamp. Just going through what pictures they have and what photographic evidence there is from past cases and from the Jersey Devil lore. And he gets to one image, which is not supposed to be as funny as I think it is. It's very clearly the classic shot of that Bigfoot, that fuzzy image, but with breasts. Cut from there, Mulder spending his Saturday night at work in his office to Scully spending her Saturday night on a date. And her date is just talking about how he dealt with his breakup and the new stepfather, and the jealousy he had. And say, well, you'll understand when you have kids. They change everything. And he's trying to make conversation, offering to take the kids to the beach someday. And Skelly says that would be great, but she's not acting like that would be great. You could tell they're not quite hitting it off. He's trying, though. He even asks, well, can you talk about the case you're on? Would you like to? And she sees him cutting into meat that's just been served and decides eh, this is not the kind of case we should be discussing over dinner. From there, cut back to Mulder in his office. He's looking at the images. It's 8 o'clock on the Saturday night. His phone is ringing. He gets the call from that same ranger that he met out who found the body the first time. And the ranger's saying, found another body in the woods today. Looks like it's been dead six to eight months. Long-haired male. Missing the same tooth I found on the rabbit. Could be your devil. And ranger says, I turn it over the the coroner's office. Moe is asking, are you sure it's male? He's already started to think maybe this is a female. Cut back to Scully at her date and her pager's going off. Yes, this is 1993. It's still more pagers than cell phones. You see the occasional car phone, but there's not a lot of cell phones in this first season. Phone rings and Mulder doesn't answer hello. He answers Scully. He knows there's only one person calling him this time of night. And now he's thinking, maybe it's not a beast man we're looking for after all. And he's put those pieces together. There they go back to Jersey and they find this body that the ranger turned in was never tagged and never brought to the coroner. And Mulder's getting upset. The anthropology professor's with them so he could check out the body. And Mulder's just agitated. He's saying like, this is the wrong kind of publicity. They wouldn't fuel the craps tables. They're trying to sweep it under the rug. They buried the body before it got here, and Imulder's saying that there's a decent chance this thing has a mate. So they go back to where mulder saw it the first time, bringing the anthropology professor and the forest ranger with them, trying to find this thing and trying to get information about it. Basically looking for a way to get the proof that they're looking for. As they go through the warehouse, which was found by a little more thoroughly, they notice a few other oddities and blood-soaked rags around, and that type of thing. The local police are coming to check it out and they see the Park Ranger's vehicle on the drive-by. So they call it in, which means the local police have been trying to bury this, are now starting to put together that Mulder and Scully are still on the case and they're not ignoring it. This time they're not just coming to check it out and to say, hey, what are you doing, get out of here. They're showing up in force. So the SWAT team is being sent to corral Mulder and Scully to keep them from doing their investigation, which is a bit of an extreme reaction considering they're claiming there's nothing going on. It's a very blatant sign that, oh yeah, there's something going on and they know there's something going on here. While they're doing the investigation, Muller's saying, well, what if it is a female? Does she still feel emotion? he's trying to figure out how this Neanderthal person would relate to the human species today. So he's not looking at her as truly a human being. And Scully's again making light of it, saying, well, maybe she'd spend her day shopping. Muller's saying, well, we're eight million years out of Africa. I still don't think we're that different. And again, Scully's looking at the positive technology we've had. So she's a lot more of the optimist. She's looking at building computers, building rockets, and sending people to the moon, and then Mulder looks at the war technology, and it's a bit of pessimism coming through, saying maybe we're just beasts with big brains. And even Scully recognizes, yeah, eight six-year-old boys running around at her godson's birthday party? That's fairly primitive behavior. This entire sequence is being shot with just a little bit of outside light coming in. So it is a daytime scene, but it still feels like night. There's no interior lights on. They're searching in the dark. They're not even using their flashlights. It's just whatever lights come in the cracks in the boarded-up windows in the abandoned warehouse. When the officers show up saying, where's Mulder and Scully? We know they're here. The anthropology professor and the forest ranger are playing dumb, saying, no, no, we've never met them. We don't know what's going on. As they keep going through, Mulder finds the nest, and he knows, oh yeah, this is the den. So he's found the scraps. He's found where this Jersey Devil has been staying. And he hears some banging on a roof and goes off in pursuit, leaves Scully behind. So again, once he sees that evidence, Scully becomes an afterthought, just like it took him half an hour to let her know that there's these amazing lights back in deep Throat. He takes off, and she's behind him, going Mulder, where are you? He's not answering. He's just following the Jersey Devil, and she's managed to get outside the warehouse. And he goes off in pursuit. Scully figures out where he went. The SWAT team is coming after them anyway, so she's chasing him too. He's going out across the rooftops, the boards. Now the viewer still hasn't had a clear look at this. Initially, it was a nighttime scene. Now we're just getting glimpses. The clearest shot we have is just from mid-shins down. Well, the chases are into the next warehouse, and again, it's an abandoned warehouse. they got the lights off. It's dimly lit. It feels like a nighttime scene. And I've got a lot of dark cinematography in this series. It's really starting to come through. I mean, a lot of the light that we have, is reflections. It's coming in through dusty windows and behind fans. So we don't really get a clear look at anything. It's even a very long sequence, as Mulder's looking for, that's about 20 or 30 seconds of just wandering through the dark. So it's building suspense. It's throwing you off guard, almost to the point where you get a comfort level. You figure this thing's gone when it comes out of nowhere. Knocks him down, and disappears again. So it's still very defensive. It's more like it's trying to scare him away than actually trying to hurt him. And the Jersey Devil starts to slowly come out of the shadows, and he sees that it is a woman. And he... He stays lying there. He doesn't defend himself. He's trying to let her know he is not a threat. This is one of the scenes that doesn't work quite as well on DVD, it breaks this suspense a little bit in the middle, because this was the scene that was used for the final commercial break. So it fades to black and fades back in on a much further shot. So instead of just having a close-up of the Jersey Devil on top of Mulder, the Jersey Devil and Mulder are now in the bottom center, fading out and fading in. It's one of the things that just throws you a little bit when you're watching it on the DVD, whereas in the original broadcast, that's what re-centers the viewer coming back from commercials. As she pulls back, Mulder leans up to try and follow her, and that's when she hits him in the abdomen and knocks him down. So Scully calls out, Uh, Jersey Devil takes off and Scully finds Mulder's injury. But Mulder doesn't even care about the injury. He's just telling her, oh, this is what she was. She was beautiful. You should have seen it. Cut here to an ambulance where he's getting tied up. And Scully knows Mulder was on the right track the whole time. The police are getting in the way trying to cover this up. So while Mulder's in the ambulance getting patched up trying to talk about what's going on, Scully's just pacing back and forth with her portable phone. It's just the car phone handset trying to reach anyone who can get jurisdiction handed over to the federal case. This is when the ranger comes up and says they've got her cornered. Mulder takes off. His wound's not even completely dressed yet. The local people have got her cornered in a wall they're going through and there's a man down she just jumped out of a second story window she's headed south into the woods on foot Mulder and the ranger Scully the anthropology professor also managed to fit in the front seat of the ranger's truck it's a pretty wide truck gotta be pretty uncomfortable none of whom appear to be wearing seat belts they get to the woods and they're trying to find this thing before she does. And they got the ranger on their side and he goes, yeah, if she's hiding I know where she'll be. So he's trying to take a shortcut to the best hiding places. While the others are doing a more systematic search. Again, we have attention to detail here. Since his injury Mull has just been wearing a white t-shirt and the wound on his side is opening up, but it is a little bit patched and we actually see the blood starting to grow with a rectangular white spot in the middle. So it is just the edges of the wound that are spreading out. We also see a bit of a first. Now, the show premiered in 1993, the same year as NYPD Blue. NYPD Blue took a lot of flack and got a lot of press for having a woman's naked rear end and also Dennis Franz's naked rear end in primetime television. There was a big stink saying this is inappropriate. X-Files has it too at about the same time. In fact, this episode originally aired on... October 8th, 1993. NYPD Blue premiered on September 21st. So they were about the same time. They were pretty much contemporary shows in their launch, and yet the X-Files didn't get nearly the same attention for having the same level of nudity that NYPD Blue did. A lot of it's because the ratings for the X-Files in the first season just frankly weren't good. Fox was still a very young network. To this point, the successes it had were effectively Baywatch, Beverly Hills 90210, The Simpsons, and Married with Children. Now, Simpsons and Married with Children were still on the air at this point, and still doing fairly well, But that was the half-hour comedy format. Baywatch was looking at a completely different demographic. Beverly Hills 90210 had wrapped up. So, while the ratings the X-Files had today would have gotten it cancelled, quite frankly, it had worse ratings than Firefly did in its first season, and that didn't even get to finish the season. And it was a fairly expensive show, being a sci-fi or a horror and fantasy, for a lot of it, even though the show's producers managed to keep it on the cheap. It was basically given another shot, because at the time that this would have gone into season two in the fall of 1994, Fox didn't have any one-hour dramas to replace it with, and they didn't have anything else to compete in that field. So they kept running with the developed show, even though it wasn't really performing the way they wanted it to perform. Which turns out to be nice in the long run, given what X-Files would become for them. At any rate, back to the episode. So they've been chasing it through the woods, they hear a gunshot. And the others catch up, Mulder gets there first, the Jersey Devil has been killed by the police. And Mulder's just, you can tell he's upset, he's blown away, why did you have to kill her? And the detective in charge says, the same reason you kill a rabid animal. So he's not seeing this as a human being, he doesn't care, he's just trying to keep it out of sight, get it done with. And again, Scully plays the politician... She just holds Mulder by the arm, pulls him out. We see the reaction of the ranger, and he just knows this was wrong. we cut back from there to Mulder back in the office, going through the crime scene photos. Now the body that the ranger found of the male has mysteriously reappeared. One week later, as they're wrapping it all up, and they know there's no more. But even a week later, Mulder is still upset. Scully's got the results of the autopsies, and they found human bone fragments in the digestive tract. So she was 25 to 30 years old. He was about in his 40s, but there's no sign that these are Neanderthals, as Muller first suspected. So she's just listed as a Jane Doe. So whatever these are, these are feral people, but they are still physiologically humans. So it's coming to the nature versus nurture and looking at the wild side. And again, with a little bit of the ecological message along with it. And Mulder says, at those ages, they probably had offspring. And Scully says, well... Yeah, the examination of her universe would suggest that. And Scully's trying to help him get a life. So she's saying, you know what? Take the day off. Go have a beer. Blow off some steam. I'll cover for you. And Muller's got an appointment at the Smithsonian with an ethnobiologist to talk about the case. So again, he's not backing down. He's even trying to give her a life. And at this point, Rob, Scully's date from the other night, calls and asks her for a date. So Scully has the choice. Basically, she can have a personal life with this guy that maybe didn't thrill her, but seemed okay. Or she can go with Mulder to the Smithsonian. So again, Mulder goes to requisition a car. While he's there, Scully catches up. This time she's going with him. So she's starting to make the same choice as he is. She's starting to put the work first above the personal life. Not that she was ever neglecting her work, but now she's just throwing herself more into it. There's even a bit of a banter here again, when Mulla's going, oh, well, who was that guy? Was it the same guy you were with the other time? She's saying, yeah, she's not going to see him again. So again, he plays it relieved, but once more, not romantically, just very respectful, just, okay, looking at having that partner with him on his journey in investigating these cases. So that's it for Mulder and Scully. It does dissolve to uh, father and son walking through the woods, and Dad's trying to tell his son the story of the Jersey Devil as he heard it when he was a kid, and pan down from the two of them on the trail, and we see, yes, the Jersey Devil had an offspring. There's a little girl that's hiding in the woods, and from there we fade to the credits. So that was the fifth episode of the X-Files, and the second Monster of the Week episode. And again, in this early season we're seeing a lot written by Chris Carter, so they didn't really have the size of the writer staff and the writing pool that they would have in the later seasons. Now, this one, as I said, was aired on October 8th, 1993. Well, this podcast will be back in two weeks as usual. This is the first time X-Files Skipped a week. The first five weeks were aired back to back. The next episode, episode six, Shadows, didn't air until October twenty second, and that was followed by Ghost in the Machine, which, a little bit of trivia, was the only episode of the X Files that even mentioned Halloween, which is not necessarily what some people might expect from this particular series. Alright, I hope you all join us in two weeks as we talk about shadows. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Laswell, created under the Creative Commons license. The rest of this podcast, copyright. Euro 42, 2013.